District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hi, listeners. I have a special treat for you today. I am bringing on a new friend of mine that I met while speaking at Florida State University recently. And we'll also have some other organizers of the Second Amendment talk that I had participated in come on as well. But someone that really stuck out to me was Odin, who we're going to be speaking with on this episode. And he is a native of South Africa. And he had asked me a question during Q&A about how come South Africa is not used as a case study as to what would happen if disarmament were to be implemented in contrast to Australia, which is always served as an example for why gun control supposedly is viable. And that really piqued my interest. I said, let's hop onto a podcast. And now here Odin is to talk about his homeland and and why that should be used more so than Australia. Odin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on, Gabriella. How did you come to the United States? Talk about your background, South Africa, your upbringing there, and what led you to be interested in firearms policy? Okay, sure. Um, my name is Odin Moja. I am a PhD student at FSU. Um, I'm actually also the currently re-elected president of the Florida State College Libertarians. Um, I came to FSU to do my PhD. Specifically, I chose FSU because of the particular program that they had, and it was particularly renowned for my field. And so I ended up in the great state of Florida. I couldn't be more thankful that's how it turned out, because given how things have played out, I'm really glad I'm in Florida. And yeah, and I it was just pure luck that apparently the um, the college itself had a really strong uh, libertarian movement club going there. And back home, I was already a member of GOSA or GOSA, which is Gun Owners of South Africa. And so that's that's where I sort of came in into the whole fray. Could you explain for those who are unfamiliar with South Africa, its government and how you guys are tied to Great Britain and that connection there? Sure. Uh, of course, South Africa was part of, well, is still technically capable of being part of the Commonwealth Games, part of the Commonwealth. But in the strictest legal sense, I believe we were still under the dominion of Britain up until 1961, 62. Um, so yeah, it wasn't actually that long ago as, as, as a colony. And and from there, there was the nationalist uh, apartheid government, which I'm sure was quite famous with a lot of people. And then from there, the ANC rose to power, the African National Congress, under figures like Walter Sisulu and Nelson Mandela um, since 1994. And from there, it's pretty much just been a single party rule, uh, which is slowly breaking down because we have a multi-party system. But it's pretty much been a single party rule as long as I've been alive. So yeah, it's, 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 it's been sort of one regime change to another for a very long time now. Talk about the Gun Owners of South Africa group and how did that bring about? Gun Owners of South Africa. Uh, uh, well, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm familiar in, in, of, with the NRA and the GOA in the US and I think Concealed Carry America. Um, there aren't that many groups in, in South Africa. Um, it's either Gun Owners of South Africa or SAGA, uh, but uh, I'm a member of GOSA and they uh, fulfill a number of roles. They basically came about as a group of concerned firearms owners who sort of sat down and looked around them as, as the different regimes sort of changed the hands of power and 
and they realize, okay, this is becoming a creeping encroachment on our ability to handle firearms. I mean, we went from a situation whereby in, um, and this is not a very well-known thing, that while the U.S. was fighting the war in, in Vietnam, South Africa was fighting a similar war in Angola um, for very similar reasons, uh, the whole communism, capitalism conflict. And it was, it was basically our Vietnam. And we went from a situation in our gun culture where uh, guys would come home with their service rifles and get to keep them to every year, it seemed like there was a new law restricting what kind of guns you could have, the amount of ammunition you could have, and so on and so on. And so eventually GOSA formed to sort of try to band together as a sort of civil rights organization. Um, oh, speaking of civil rights, I should also give a shout out to Afroforum, which is another civil rights organization back home who work for civil rights, especially in terms of property ownership and firearms. And they formed to sort of it's, it was basically a group of firearms owners saying, look, it's if we don't band together, we, we're going down individually. So let's bring everyone together. You know, it wasn't all just hunters or soldiers or whatever. Some people were just lawyers who happened to enjoy going to the range every now and then. Some people were dedicated hunters. Some people were dedicated sports shooters. And they all sort of banded together to eventually form the GOSA, which we know today. What is the process to obtain firearms? Is there also a comparable Second Amendment in South Africa's constitution? Enlighten me on this, because I know the Second Amendment is probably not very common abroad, except for our country and I think two Latin American countries. Uh, there is sadly no sec comparable Second Amendment. In fact, the level of gun control in South Africa is what I would I would say is the dream for people who are very very much in favor of gun control. I can give you an example. My my everyday carry back home is a Smith & Wesson MNP 2.0, chambered in nine millimeter. Um, I like American pistols. And so it, the process for me to get it, um, obviously they, they you have to register with a firearms uh, dealership school type thing. So you have to go to firearms school, which means you have to pass a test and that test is actually two parts. It's a legal legal part and a competency part. The legal part uh, is a written test in which you show you know the situations under which you may employ your firearm. And a very high level sort of overview of that is that basically in, in South Africa, you can only discharge a firearm in self-defense um, if the other person is using some form of lethal weapon against you. Fists don't count, so they have to be armed with, with a knife or a gun, and if they're coming at you, meaning that if somebody comes into your home and just peacefully, quote unquote, takes property from your house, you're not in the tech, most technical sense actually allowed to shoot them because they're not a bodily threat to you. And so you're not allowed to shoot them in, in that case. Um, and then the second half, of course, is the competency uh, course, which is basically you have to get X amount of shots on, on a target using the weapon of, of, of your choice. Um, we have licensing systems there. So we have a Grand Central Firearms Registry. And each person has, like for myself, my, my pistol is registered in a Central Firearms Registry, serial number, barrel, 
all that stuff. Um, it also tracks how much ammunition you have on you. You're only allowed so many rounds of ammunition. And so I had to go through the legal test, the competency test, and then the last part, which is the part that really, really um, sort of trips up a lot of people is that, that you have to write a, I mean, aside from obviously not having any sort of criminal or violent background, you have to write a motivational to what you your local police officers call your designated firearms officer, which is basically the police officer in charge of overseeing firearms licensing in that area. Um, so obviously, if you have things like DUIs, domestic battery, that sort of thing, then you're out immediately. However, the CFR is sort of designed to just be backlogged and discourage people from being armed. And that's where organizations like GOSA um, really come in because basically by they, they help their members through one of the membership fees is helping them write better motivationals and um, appealing uh, when members are turned down for licenses for no uh, good reason because unfortunately it is within the DFO's designated firearms officer's purview to, even if you are clear, turn down your application for no real reason. And I have witnessed it happen. And so it is very unfortunate. And that's, and that's more or less how it goes back home. So we have it quite easy in the United States when it comes to a less strenuous process. Yeah. I also have to read, I also have to, uh, sort of renew my my pistol license every five years and you're also required to have a different license for ev different every different class of weapon you have so you may have a a license for this specific pistol then you're going to need another license for the next pistol and if you want a rifle you have to get a semi-dedicated sports shooter uh license and so on and it is it is a bureaucratic mess and it is very painful it sounds like a deterrent, a purposeful deterrent. And we see that kind of mimicked. I don't know if on the same grand scale as what you are describing in South Africa, but we do have a similar system in place in what we call blue states or really not so gun friendly states in about nine or eight states in the United States. Maryland, one example, California, especially California, I think seems to mirror South Africa, judging off of what I've heard you say. Uh, the most. Um, yeah. Cause it, it, to me, it seems inconceivable to have to go through so many different tests. I mean, certainly you have to prove your competency in most States, like for my concealed carry permit, I had to go through training. I went to an in-person course, fulfilled that got my test succeeded, was able to obtain my permit, but I didn't have to pay for a license fee to actually own a gun, which to me is really wonderful. A blessing here in Virginia that you don't have to do that because on a needs basis, let's say you're, I don't have any problem. I don't have to prove in Virginia, or I think in most states, you don't really have to prove that you have a need for a gun, which is wonderful because you shouldn't have to under the second amendment provisions of our constitution. But in many cases in states where guns are not openly or guns are not easy to obtain for self-defense reasons, New Jersey, New York, um, some people have had to say, well, I've been attacked by a domestic abuser. I have this case and they may still even be rejected or that process may be prolonged until they can obtain it. And then there are some instances where a woman who requested that permit license, she died of by her ex-boyfriend just right before she was about to receive it. So there's a lot of arguments oh, to terrible. be made. Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, here in the United States, people say, well, we have to have 
Australia, South African policies in place because there's too much of a proliferation of guns. But they don't know they don't know how to make a distinction between guns used by criminals and guns used by law-abiding people, and the latter of which is actually the majority, um, not criminal gun okay. use whatsoever. But when you hear, um, you've probably interacted with a lot of Americans in your graduate degree studies, probably who've said, well, we do need to make it harder. How would you respond to those individuals who who are somewhat sympathetic here in the States? Do you think they take the ability to obtain guns for granted? Uh, do they just not know? Um, you know, when I was a bit younger, I was a bit more fired up about it. But now I would, I, 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 I tend to think, well, getting mad at people doesn't help. I would, I would ask them a simple question. I would ask, ask them this question. It would be, what law would you enact that would ensure that criminals do not get their hands on guns, but law-abiding people can still get their hands on guns? Because the majority of of laws that at least back home are just hamstringing law-abiding people and you know for example even in in places like johannesburg which is you know the, the, the richest city in southern africa you know it's it's a very well developed wealthy city if you woke up there you may think you're in new york it's every bit as developed but you still have um because we have countries like Mozambique to the northwest of us, and we have really porous borders with Mozambique, you still have, you know, and their civil war issues going up in the north, um, you still have an influx of, you know, unregistered weapons just flowing in into and, and making their way to major cities. So again, the people who make it harder, I I I would say I agree with you that it bad people shouldn't have guns. What law would you make that would actually avoid these tragedies? And I'd just like to know the answer to that question. And unfortunately, many of them cannot list what would remedy such a problem because you see now yeah. in the United States that a lot of the people who should be prohibited possessors are being let out of jail and back onto the streets. And people are like, oh my gosh, what is the rap sheet? Like, do they have a previous criminal record? And almost all the time when you find out the assailant committed a crime, you find that they have an extensive record of gun charges, of domestic abuse, of something, and they should have been prohibited. So there are laws already on the books that many of us argue that should be enforced because a lot of these people create gun control policies, they don't enforce them, and then they ultimately let out the people who committed crimes involving guns back onto the street. And I scratch my head when I hear that <laughs> from yeah. an American standpoint, because they're not actually tackling the problem and they love to defer to the inanimate object and not the individuals who are behind the crime. And then they see other countries taking it away. And they say, this is a great example because it's going to stop the problem. And they say that Australia or South Africa doesn't have as high amount of, let's say like a violent crime. But I think what they fail to understand is violent crime is measured differently. There are other instances of violent crime. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Why do you think they miss out on perhaps what other tools are used in violent crime and they only single out the removal of guns from society? Well, I mean, for, for before I even get to that, I would, I would, um, I would actually rebut that and say no. The violent crime rate in South Africa in all sorts of crimes is just ridiculously high we we have it's it's gotten to a point where there are so many people and this is i guess in a way sort of a libertarian dream that there are so many people hiring private security that there's the argument that people 
people in South Africa have effectively privatized the police. But there are people killed in their driveways almost every weekend, even in nice neighborhoods. It it has not deterred it. But I suppose why they single out guns is because I, I I guess psychologically people, the impact of somebody being shot is greater. But there are people getting mugged at knife point all the time. In fact, I witnessed a girl getting mugged at knife point in my building. I was on the top floor and 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 as she was pulling into the buildings, a dude just an oak just jumped out of the bushes and held at knife point, got in and got out the car and drove away in the span of like 30 seconds. Nobody could have stopped that. So I, I would tell them that, first of all, I think you are not fully clued in on the violent crime rate in South Africa. Uh, it is ridiculously high. Um, it, it would make people squirm. It's, uh, it's I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would, I would compare it to sort of like Chicago as a, or Chirac, as they call it, it's it's very bad, and and second, I would say I I, I don't know. Like, that's my thing. Like the violent crime rate is actually high, and I think they just have this issue mentally in their heads about guns because there's the bang, there's the flash, but realistically, any implement could be used to to hurt people or commit crime. And I think their messaging is falling on deaf ears, especially when they invoke Australia or countries where gun control is very prevalent. Because we've seen a historic amount of people, I think in the last two years, there's been a cumulative increase in gun purchases, more background checks processed. I think it was Mm -hmm. 15 million, maybe a little bit more, Um, close to 20 million guns have been sold in the last years in the United States of people who've never bought guns before, who are not typically in the target demographic. A lot of people of diverse backgrounds, I think the biggest increase was among black Americans, like 57% more women, younger people. So people who are not thought of as traditional gun owners have started to buy guns in response to different attacks on different groups. Uh, They don't feel the police are going to be reliable as a protective force, especially since they're overburdened and there are different concerns with police among certain groups of people in the United States. And there's just a lot where people are just like, we want to take matters into our own account into our own hands, Uh, obviously not be a vigilante, of course, but if someone breaks into a home and they have reasonable used to to fire in self-defense and that varies across each state because you can't just fire like you said even in the united states even if you have gun friendly laws in virginia i learned that if someone is running away from you in your house even after they've attacked you you can't shoot them because that could be used against you in court like you attacked the person i was like oh wow that's crazy i do think in the united states we do see more people kind of shed preconceived notions about gun control which is amazing Mm -hmm. to me to see and I think they they hear from individuals like you who come from countries that have experimented like this. They're the case studies that you talk about uh, of living examples and how those fail. And you can even point to history. There was a great Harvard study published in 2007, and they unfortunately deleted it because they said it wasn't sufficiently peer-reviewed. But it concluded, and maybe I think there's still an excerpt. I can send it to you if you need some material for reference. But they concluded that Uh, societies where there was no private ownership of guns, the Soviet Union, Maoist China, communist Cuba, they recorded higher instances of violent crime compared to countries that had private ownership. It was a clear case of obviously private ownership, second amendment, far less violent crime. And they didn't like the conclusion by the sound of it. (laughs) So they had to get rid of it. I mean, I I can totally see that happening. I mean, as I said, I think, 
I don't know if you remember this, but in, in when you came to speak, there's that saying in, in Africa that, you know, the reason lions don't go after porcupines that often is that when the prey is armed, the predator thinks twice. So I can totally see that being a thing. And in terms of, and in terms of the, the um, minority um, increase in gun ownership in the United States, I think that's another reason why South Africa would be uh, a good case study in that South Africa is a 90% black country. So the, the idea that gun control is somehow ethnically linked um, um, kind of it, that could be used to be a sort of rebuttal saying, well, here's a country that's 90% black and the gun ownership there is, is skyrocketing as well. So, you know, where's, where's your argument there? And that's, and that's, and, and in terms of, as you said, also um, crime, especially with other groups like women, um, that's where, you know, I, I, I promise I'm not a GOSA spokesperson. I'm just a member, but, but groups like GOSA have done really, really well because they've marketed campaigns like girls on fire, which is their, their campaign to sort of, help women with gun ownership to say, look, you're no longer a victim. Here is how you get armed. Here is how, here is how you use it. And here's how you be competent with it. Um, and I think that was a really good move on their part to increase gun ownership. It's been years in the making, having covered this beat and going to different industry events, I've just noticed a shift, a kind of direction change and it's wonderful because it shouldn't just be exclusive to one particular group of people, regardless of your socioeconomic status, your racial background. It really should be enjoyed by all Americans. And I think that's what the industry has long stood for. Um, different groups, I would point to the National Shooting Sports Foundation and manufacturers and ammunition companies themselves, hunting organizations, conservation groups. A lot of people have been trying to push for more participation among um, so-called untraditional demographics or not traditional demographics and, and bring them into the fold. And it's wonderful to see. And you see a lot of reports kind of denying that and saying, well, how could a person of this background choose to own firearms and, and then not know their history? But I've heard from different friends who've told me the gun control was historically used to suppress minorities from self-actualizing, from rising up and being autonomous. Right. Um, I, I like that you mentioned hunting there because so if, if I may sort of divert for, for a Please. second, um, South Africa always also has a really strong hunting culture. Uh, I haven't been hunting in like three, four years since I left, but, uh, but like there, there is a strong hunting culture in South Africa and that's partially because, um, a lot of the, obviously, a lot of the indigenous tribes there, uh, the Zulu, um, the, the Tswana, I'm, I'm a member of said Tswana tribe, um, uh, the Tosa, the Pedi, all of that, obviously, that's just how they got their meat. And then you've also got uh, groups like the Afrikaans people, um, the Afrikaners, many of whom are my best mates, um, who also sort of lived off the land. There's this culture of living off the land and hunting is very integral to that. And so in the last year, at last, I would say decade or so rather, I would say another reason South Africa makes for a good uh, case study is that you have all these conservation groups there who, uh, you know, through through sort of game hunting farms where, you know, I remember going with my mates and you you put down like one, one blessed buck and that's enough meat and biltong or I guess beef jerky, as you call it here, to to last you a good long time. And and through those through those game farms, they are actually able to 
drive revenue and breed these animals um, for which, you know, A, creates jobs, A, drives, uh, B, drives the economy and C, actually, you know, a lot of people think, well, that would just, if, if, you, if you're letting people pay to hunt these animals, it's going to drive their numbers down where it actually has the opposite effect. And it, it's even helped with sort of, um, sort of trophy hunting, which personally not a fan of, but I, I don't argue with the reality is that a lot of um, farmers are now sort of almost counterintuitively doing breeding and protecting certain animals for conservation. And it's actually helping bring back certain animals whose numbers were dwindling in, in the wild. I'd love to give you some evidence on that um, maybe after the show, but yeah. So just in terms of hunting, that's also another reason why I think South Africa would be a really great uh, case study for the gun lobby in America. Yeah, hunting is slightly separate from the Second Amendment, but I have actually focused on South Africa and some of the other countries that have done that, which is unfortunately billed as trophy hunting. And I like like you, I personally would not hunt the big five, but I yeah. do see and I understand locally speaking why that is done. And then I watched a CNN documentary called Trophy, which was actually really fascinating. And it did point to South Africa and I think a farmer there who was raising endangered rhinos. And he yep. would prematurely shave off their horns so poachers wouldn't come kill them and take the horns away. And then I think he was instrumental in changing a law where I think there was a ban on horns for the sale. Um, and I, maybe I'm not educating, maybe I'm not making an educated uh, opinion on this. Um, I have yeah. to revisit that. But I remember it was something relating to decriminalizing uh, the possession of horns or the sale of horns. Yeah, um, trade to, for trade. Like that, yeah. So he could use those monies, if I'm not mistaken, to help with conservation efforts. And I think he was able to petition the government to do that. But I will I'll find something after the fact to to make a more educated claim on that. But I, I do remember seeing that because he was inhibited from not because he wanted to profit off of um, keeping the rhinos on his property, but he wanted to uh, help get more money so that he could continue to do the operation and then eventually put them back into the wild. Yeah, he was actually, I, 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 he came up in a lecture, actually. I just can't remember his name, but he is rather famous back home. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, South Africa and Africa in general, I think a lot of people go there and we call them neo-colonialists, the people who kind of judge Africa and their uh, management programs that they have there. And certainly it's a little bit different than what we have here in North America, but we do like to point to Africa and say like, well, they know how to better manage. Let's trust them. Let's obviously not encourage poachers, but we can trust them and, and have them carry out what they think is best for the wildlife populations and other, I would say for people, how you can have that uh, symbiosis between people and wildlife. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Odin, is there anything else you want to add about your thoughts on the Second Amendment? Um, what you're doing with your organization? Anything coming up? How people can connect with you and learn more about what you're doing while you're here in the states? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I mean, my personal opinion on the Second Amendment is—I mean—it's obviously easy to infer. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think it is a great backstop um, against certain in. I know not always in practice, but in theory, a great backstop. And I think that more Americans would come to love it if they truly understood its purpose and came to understand what happens in countries 
like mine where you don't have the Second Amendment. Um, case in point, I, I, I mentioned to you um, at, your, at your speaking event about what happened during um, lockdowns in terms of the number, the, the number of people um, killed by security forces versus the number of people who actually died of illness. And it the the difference is is rather large. I think the 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 IPID, um, which is the Internet Independent Police Investigation Department of South Africa, had the number of of people killed somewhere in the in in the realm of about thirty two who were killed by police brutality, um, and eighteen in custody uh, within the first forty days alone. And yeah, that's that's. And a lot of people ask me, well, why didn't you do anything? And we say, well, because people can't do anything. We don't have weapons back home, or at least so few people have weapons that it's it's not a it's not a great thing. So yeah, I would say I I think I really love the Second Amendment. In terms of my organization, um, I think it's pretty easy. Uh, I guess my organize you can you can check out the Florida State College Libertarians on Twitter. Um, the at is at FSUCLs and the Instagram at, I believe, is also similar. It's Florida's, it's uh, College Libertarians of FSU. And that's about it. For me, you can catch me on Twitter um, at, at WotanZA. So it's W-O-T-A-N-Z-A. Uh, and that's, that's about it. I think um, we're... I'd love, we'd love to host you actually in the future again. And I think that's all I've got on my plate for now. Wonderful. Yeah. I think I'm coming back to campus with one of your other center-right coalition groups, March 10th. And then I think that big event sometime in the fall, you guys are wonderful. So I would love to come back again and uh, talk more about these interesting subjects at hand. And maybe we could explore hunting too, kind of in a comparable way between the United States and Africa and the different management systems and how they actually do act as a boon to local economies while also promoting wildlife conservation, <laughs> interestingly enough. But yes, wonderful, Odin. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, we look forward to sending people your guys' way. I, I really was impressed by FSU's uh, programming that you guys have in your economics department. You are a great group of students, and I hope you guys will continue to do what you do. Thank you for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to this installment of District of Conservation. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. Make sure you're subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, our highest listening platform. And also find us on Spotify, which is also a popular choice, and wherever podcasts are played. If you ever have any questions, thoughts, concerns, go leave some reviews for us in these respective podcast players, especially Apple. And let us know what you'd like to hear or who you'd like me to interview next. We have much, much more content ahead in 2022. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.